This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. I'm Will Kane. I'm Dana Perino. I'm Greg Jarrett, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Tuesday, November 7th. 2023. I'm Dave Anthony. It's election day. And while abortion is a big issue in two states, a year from now, the big focus may be a rematch of two presidents. I don't believe there was a single credible news media probability sample poll that had Biden losing to Trump. That's not the case in 2024. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. Is it the algorithm or just what young people want to watch? Why is there so much pro-Palestinian content on TikTok? And what does it mean? We've uncovered over 40,000 fake accounts, pro-Hamas fake accounts. So the planning, the scale, all of these things, whilst we can't conclusively uh, say who is exactly behind this, we can say this is almost an activity on an unprecedented scale. And I'm Tammy Bruce. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. Election Day is here, though it's an off year. Control of Congress is not up for grabs. There isn't a presidential vote, so there's a lot of focus on an issue, abortion. Just 24 months ago, Virginia was totally controlled by the progressive left, and the state was was lost. But since he was elected governor, Republican Glenn Youngkin tells Fox, I believe common sense conservative policies have allowed it to be found. He's hoping voters give his party control of the Virginia legislature in this election so they can pass a 15-week abortion ban. In Ohio, voters can decide whether to put a woman's right to abortions into the state constitution. But Republican Governor Mike DeWine tells Fox News Sunday it goes too far. Up until birth, so at any time during the pregnancy. The second thing it would do is is really threaten a law that we've had on the books for many years that requires parental consent. If we're dealing with a minor. Now, back in August, Ohio Republicans tried to make it harder to amend the state constitution, but voters rejected that attempt at requiring a ballot measure to get 60 percent approval. Because that went down so miserably and because Republicans underachieved in 2022, a lot of people are looking for other ways to gauge the significance of abortion heading into 2024. And this is kind of the best indicator we've got. Darren Shaw is a professor of government at the University of Texas, a member of the Fox News National Decision Team, and he's in the bipartisan Fox News polling group. Ohio is a state that's trended very Republican in the last five, ten years or so. And so for this amendment to be successful there, I think it would give Democrats a lot of confidence going into 2024 that this issue still has legs, that it's a mobilizing issue, and it could even the playing field in some places where Democrats might have otherwise felt the state's kind of slipping away. Abortion rights advocates have had victories on this issue in Michigan. They had victories in Kansas, Ohio. Is this a toss-up? Does it look like Republicans might get a win on on this issue or not? You know, here's the tricky thing. Um, The political science literature will tell you that um, the no side tends to be underrepresented in polls heading into um, an initiative or a proposition. Uh, that's on the ballot. 
Uh, I'm, you know, kind of cut my teeth in California, and that was always the conventional wisdom there. I think it was borne out by the data. And we're not real confident in our ability to correctly estimate the no side on some of these ballot propositions. So that, that's why I think everybody's watching it with bated breath. If you're just reading the polls, I think it looks like it probably got a pretty solid chance to pass, but we'll see. Okay. Now, Virginia, the issue is not on the ballot directly, but there are races for the state legislature and how those go then leads to abortion in the future, correct? The state Senate is the only kind of aspect of government that the Democrats continue to control in Virginia. Uh, Control of the state Senate is therefore kind of a consequential test of whether Youngkin and this kind of seemingly ascendant Republican majority can, can really take hold of Virginia politics. Youngkin has proposed, as after the in the aftermath of the Dobbs decision, a ban on abortions, I believe after 15 weeks. You can correct me if I'm, I'm wrong on that. Yep. I, I think it's 15. Um, and so that's not going to happen unless Republicans gain control of the state Senate. It's a turnout race in an off-year election, and that's always difficult to gauge. Now, there are two races for governor. In Mississippi, you have the incumbent Republican Tate Reeves, who's in a tight race with a Democrat who's anti-abortion and pro-gun. It's different, I guess, in the South when you're a Democrat, right? That's right. This is almost a callback to the the kinds of uh, conservative Democrats that you used to see that populated, even dominated Southern politics. This is Brandon Presley. You know, this is a, an interesting race because those of us who want to get a sense of whether uh, African-American turnout can be a factor, can is that something that can make these races competitive, um, are really looking at that Mississippi race. Because Presley has spent a lot of time trying to jazz up turnout enthusiasm in the African-American community. Nationwide, you know, Democrats have been very concerned about lack of enthusiasm in the black communities uh, with Biden at the head of the ticket. So, that's one, you know, obviously for substantive reasons we're interested, but as a, again, a harbinger for 2024, that's why that Mississippi race drawn a lot of attention. Now in Kentucky, you have a black Republican, the attorney general, Daniel Cameron, who's trying to unseat Democratic Governor Andy Bashir. Polls look pretty close. Yeah, I think the, the last one I saw was, was essentially a tie. I think it was 48. Bashir has had very good ratings throughout his time as, as governor of Kentucky. You know, we were kind of talking about sort of more conservative leaning, uh, you know, Democrats. And Bashir has kind of tried to to toe that line between kind of the National Democratic Party and what works for as a Democrat in Kentucky. Cameron was really nowhere six months ago, but this race seems to have really tightened. And yeah, if you can get an African-American who, Republican who could knock off a pretty popular Democratic incumbent, I think a lot of people would think that's bad news for Biden, right? Because what Cameron has really done is tied Biden around Bashir's neck in that race. A year from now, we may have a rematch on the 2024 ballot. And like a Bloomberg survey showed last month, a New York Times-Siena poll gives former President Trump a lead in five battleground states. Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Nevada, where Trump is ahead by 11 points. President Biden's leading by two in Wisconsin, but trailing in the New York Times national poll as well. You know, Biden is underachieving. You know, Biden never trailed Trump in 2020, according to the national polls. I I don't believe there was a single credible news media probability sample poll that had Biden losing to Trump. Well, that's not the case in 2024. I think the numbers are plausible. But I tell you what really I think has probably spooked the White House 
is the economic ratings. You know, do, do you think Donald Trump or Joe Biden would do a better job of handling the economy? If you look at the inside of both the Bloomberg and the New York Times Siena polls, you'll see that Biden is just getting destroyed by Trump on those economic handling numbers. That's something they got to deal with. They tried with Bidenomics and rebranding and really pushing the, you know, the jobs creation and things like that. But this is something he's got to deal with. And I don't I don't think simply changing the channel and talking about abortion is necessarily going to get it done. In the survey, 71 percent in these states say that President Biden's too old. That includes more than half of his own supporters. I know former President Trump's only like three years younger, but <laughs> but but President Biden, we see him every day. And, you know, sometimes he looks tired or, or he makes, you know, stumbles a little bit as he's talking or walking a little bit. That is every day versus former President Trump. We don't see that as much. So how much of a factor is that? You know, we've never seen a, a race like this. Uh, we have not had two candidates at this stage of their lives kind of contesting for the ultimate office. David Axelrod came out, basically sort of suggested President Obama's, Obama's top advisor that maybe Biden should consider stepping aside. And part of his logic was, you know, you can do something about your ratings on the economy. You can do something about the economy as president. You could do something about your foreign policy. You can't do anything about your age. The arrow only points in one direction. And it's it's an interesting point to consider. I mean, the Democrats have a, a pretty interesting farm system with, you know, people like Newsom or Buttigieg or others. And it, it's interesting to see how prominent Democrats are broaching this subject um, because it's beginning to get a little almost too late, right? If, if nothing's done by the end of the year, then he's the nominee. And if he doesn't make it, then Kamala Harris would be it. I mean, it's, it's difficult to see how anything other than that would happen. But I, I think it's a real problem that, you know, the lack of strong leadership numbers, I think, flow directly from the notion that the president isn't physically and mentally up for the job. There's a caveat. Voters were also asked if former President Trump is convicted. Now, he has four criminal trials that are looming. He testified Monday in a civil case in New York that he calls, you know, a rigged case and a witch hunt and all this. If he's convicted, then in those states, President Biden has a 10-point lead. You remember the famous line that Trump had, gosh, five, six, seven years ago about how, you know, I could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and it wouldn't affect, you know, my ratings would go up or something right. to that effect. I'm right. paraphrasing. But Ultimately, that is the question. I just have a hard time believing that all of these charges are viewed by the vast majority of voters as similarly uninfluential, unimportant. I don't think that's true. I think, you know, there are varying degrees of significance of these different charges and these different uh, court cases that are pending. And depending upon which one comes down in which way, I think it absolutely could have an impact. And so, you know, you as I mentioned, you got Axelrod on the left saying maybe Biden should think about stepping down. You have uh, Mike Murphy, longtime Republican consultant on the right, saying that, you know, the Republicans, every Republican uh, except maybe DeSantis or Haley needs to drop out. So there's a concentration on one alternative should Trump, you know, falter or even heading into the primaries, even if he doesn't falter. So they have a clear choice between Trump and a non-Trump candidate. You know, though, if there were to be a trial and a conviction, it's possible it could be well after the primaries have been decided and he's the presumptive nominee. Does the party have any set of tools whatsoever for dealing with this? I'm I'm kind of curious. My sense is they don't. You mentioned any other candidates but Trump. On Monday in Iowa, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis gets the endorsement of Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds. DeSantis 
has stayed steady, second or third, depending on the poll, with Nikki Haley right along with him now. Does this help him in any way? Does this give him a big boost in Iowa, potentially? We're like two months away from the first contest there. Yeah, I, I'm a little dubious, but anything that's not bad news is is good for DeSantis at this point. He's just had such a, a tough run in the last couple of months. Maybe this helps him reset things. I, I do think that there's a narrative right now that DeSantis is underachieved, he's underachieved, he's underachieved. Um, but it's a long contest. How big a debate is the one Wednesday night, in your opinion? Former President Trump's not going to be there. It's debate number three with fewer candidates, it looks like. So is this going to be a, a big factor in the race, in your opinion, or not? Collectively, I think they're a big factor. Individually, probably not. I think the, the real question is, you know, do, do the two candidates who look like the non-Trump candidates right now, DeSantis and Haley, do they continue to sort of dominate? And, in, you know, DeSantis, not that he's dominated the debates, but he's just been a major figure. Haley has had debate momentum, and can she keep that going? Um, it's it's pretty well set up for her with foreign policy issues kind of moving to the forefront. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Vivek Ramaswamy seems to have fallen. Is this his last chance to get back into momentum? I, I think there'll probably be other chances, but I'm, I'm not so sure. He hasn't gotten a look, and, and Americans have sort of said, eh, you know, maybe not him. Tim Scott, Chris Christie. Long shots, and they need something big to happen. Darren Shaw, professor in the government department at the University of Texas at Austin, a member of the Fox News national decision team, and also a member of the bipartisan Fox News polling team. Great to talk to you, Darren. Thank you. My pleasure, as always. Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. This is Tammy Bruce with your Fox News commentary coming up. Over the weekend, tens of thousands gathered in Washington, D.C. outside the White House, chanting things like, Long live the Intifada and free Palestine. Palestine will be free! You may have seen video of this protest on social media. The app of choice for many young people right now is TikTok. In fact, it's estimated most TikTok users are under the age of 34. And in the last week of October alone, TikTok data revealed there'd been 285 million views and 87,000 posts with the hashtag I stand with Palestine, far outnumbering the pro-Israel posts. Michigan Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, whose parents are Palestinian, said in a video featuring the protests. Mr. President, the American people are not with you on this one. We will remember in 2024. When it comes to social media, other platforms might not see the same heavy favoritism for the Palestinian side as TikTok does. Activist and journalist Emily Austin recently told Fox's Pete Hegseth. So I can attest that as a pro-Israel voice, my views are so heavily censored. I've been shadow banned my last who knows how many posts. And the only reason they ever get views at all is if I physically click send to all my friends or I'm like, hey, go promote this, go share it because I'm not getting the views on TikTok. As for broader implications here, TikTok is owned by ByteDance, which is based in China. And while TikTok's CEO and Chinese officials promise they aren't after American data, Weifang Zhang, senior fellow at the Mercatus Center, told Fox's Maria Bartiromo that the Chinese Communist Party last year asked ByteDance and other social media companies for their algorithm data. It's about how they run algorithms behind uh, the software 
to understand the preferences of, of the American people. So ByteDance was one of the uh, dozens of companies that handed over details of the algorithms to the, to the CCP. There's no evidence of Chinese government involvement in young people's love of pro-Palestinian content on TikTok right now. But this is coming after months of U.S. politicians talking about banning TikTok over security concerns. So when it comes to content spread, does TikTok's algorithm favor Hamas? Or is it just amplifying what young Americans are engaging with? I think each of the social media platforms are, are different. Rafi Mendelson is vice president of marketing at Syabra, an Israeli technology company. Because of the way that they work, because of the algorithms, because of the various policies that, that tend to come and go. And I think at Syabra, we're always thinking about it from the perspective of a malicious actor, of someone who is trying to use the social media platforms to cause harm. And when it comes to each of the platforms, I don't think that they malicious actors are especially well-resourced ones, you know, like state actors around the world. They're not going to be thinking, okay, let's just focus on one platform as opposed to another. No, they're going to be much more sophisticated in their approach. They'll be thinking of all of the different places that people go and spend their time on. Uh, and they're thinking, okay, well, let's go where the eyeballs are. And there are so many eyeballs at the moment on TikTok. And so There'll be a lot of attention and focus on TikTok as well as the other platforms as well. Um, at, but they might be approaching it. Malicious actors might be approaching it uh, slightly different because of the slightly different nature of TikTok. Um, the the video-led and the interest-based algorithms of TikTok make it, in some ways, more unique to abuse by malicious actors. What do you mean by that? More... Uh... It's the engagement, right? Is that what you're referencing? Yeah, and I think most platforms kind of work off engagement and they have their algorithms specifically tailored for that. But it's the engagement around videos that's particularly interesting. And if we look at the Israel-Hamas uh, conflict, um, we saw from the first day imagery, videos. You know, we often have the conversation about Gen AI videos and how they're being used by bad actors online. But actually, and we have seen some of that with this conflict. But actually here, and especially at the beginning, there wasn't the need to be able to create videos or recontextualize videos from other conflicts and present them as real when they're in fact fake. But here there were so many images, so many harrowing and horrible images that could then be used on TikTok or were perfect to be used on TikTok. And as soon as it sees someone spending a little bit more time on one video or the other, that's when the algorithm really gets to work. And it starts to see that there is engagement and then starts to feed it to other people. So in some respects, but these, that's isn't uh, that how all isn't that how all these social media companies work, though? Right. Like you you start liking, you start clicking, you start paying attention to something and that you create your own little echo chamber. Absolutely. I mean, like we said, each one has their own kind of unique nature right. and, and TikTok, it tends to be more topics related if you're looking to follow the conversation about the conflict or about your favorite sports team you know you center okay. it around or something on tv you center it around topics whereas uh, tiktok it's less content from people you know and more on the things that you're interested in, or in fact your contacts are interested um, and so even yourself being careful that your network might be spending more time on these kinds of videos or on fake content and so that you're oh. more likely to be served this kind of content as well Rafi, is it, is it also that like, you know, younger people tend to be on TikTok more like, right? Like the face, the joke is Facebook is for old people. Now, the statistics seem to show if you're a young person and you want to be on social media, you're either on like YouTube or TikTok. And so if, if you're younger and you're more 
maybe left wing as more younger people might tend to be politically, then does that also influence maybe if they're seeing more pro-Palestinian content than pro-Israel content, right? If all if the pro-Palestinian content is what more left-wing people are viewing and you're a young person and you are more left-wing, is it likely you are seeing more pro-Palestinian content? Well, I think um, the malicious actors are certainly going to be taking advantage of all of the algorithms. I think the opportunity for malicious actors and the scary thing to address the question you asked um, is the ability to create different types of campaigns across different platforms. You know, the campaign that you're showing on Facebook to change people's opinions is going to be different to the one on TikTok, not just because of the algorithm, all the aspects that we've discussed, but also because of the different audiences and the ability to mm. say, yeah, okay, here's a younger audience. So let's use the kind of audiences or, or let the kind of content or have backing music that we know engages. And this is particularly seen when it comes to the creation of fake accounts and the kind of contents that they share across social media. You know, what did you find? You guys found uh, uh, thousands of new bots or fake accounts since October 7th. Where did you see them? Yes, yeah, so as a company, we track disinformation with all world events, elections and war, whatever it would be. But obviously we turned our attention and our technology towards this event. Um, and we've been covering it since. The first two days of the conflict across the 7th and the 8th, across the main social media platforms, this topic about the conflict, about Israel, Hamas, Gaza, Palestine, we found that one in four, 25% of the profiles involved in the conversation during the first two days were fake accounts. And that's wow. a huge number, considering that when a big global world event happens, we tend to go to social media, both you know, people in Israel, people around the world, journalists. And when one in four is fake, you really have to question uh, what are you seeing and who you're speaking to and what you're watching. Um, one in four across all platforms or on, on one particular platform? or One in four across the main platforms that included TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, wow. and Facebook. Um, and we should generally be cautious around what we see on social media. But we should be really, really cautious when it comes to fake accounts. It's so hard to be cautious, though, right? Like, you, what do you do then? If, if one in four accounts are fake and you're seeing fake videos and you're seeing fake pictures, like, what, what, what are you to do? This is very, very difficult to be able to, uh, to, be able to crack. And it involves uh, a lot of solutions that are needed that we're not seeing currently. I think the way that we at Cyabra think about these things, it's maybe useful and useful for your listeners to think about it split into two sides. You have the content itself, but then we have the actors, the profiles that we're engaging with. And it's important to be cautious and you know on alert about both of those aspects. Is the image what you're seeing? Does it look right? You know, that's that's what we should be doing, especially around events like these, um, where it's so easy to to draw people's attention um, and distract them using such horrific and emotive imagery. Um, but then also to focus on the actors, focus on the profiles itself that you're engaging with. You know, if you're posting something 23 of the 24 hours of the day, then that's kind of one of the signs that it's an <laughs> authentic, it's not a real account. Yeah, I think what's yeah. interesting though about what you're saying though, is you're not saying these accounts need to be banned and we need to like get this content off the platform somehow. You're not talking like that. You're saying people need to be educated so that when they come across something, they can make the assessments for themselves. And I just wonder when you hear certain politicians and others say, you know, we need to ban TikTok, 
where do you see bands being, I guess, useful? Well, I, I definitely think it was worth pointing out the specifics of the content and the profiles for your listeners. Um, that's not to say that uh, we don't have strong opinions about the platforms themselves or, or what we're seeing. From our perspective, from the perspective of Cyabra and disinformation, what we often say is let's have a conversation, let's engage with social media. You know, it, it can be hard to advocate for, uh, okay, this is no longer going to exist. If you ban TikTok, there's going to be you know, lots of 15 and 16 year olds who are not going to be happy across the US, right? <laughs> um, but actually, at the very least, if we are using social media, which we are, most of us every day, then at least be able to speak and engage with people who we know that they are real. Right? If we're in a room full of people, there might be lots of opinions in this big room auditorium of ours. But what we're saying is maybe let's point out the fact that one in four of the people in this auditorium are in fact mannequins. They're not even real. That should be the base, the basis of the conversation that we should be having right now. We certainly wouldn't entertain the idea of having a, a debate in an auditorium with 25% of the seats in the auditorium filled with mannequins. So why are we entertaining the same idea on social media where we spend so much time? Finally, Rafi, I know um, what you guys do is you're focused on finding these bad actors, these mannequins. We know that a lot of those folks thus far have come from like, you know, Russia, Eastern Europe, China, especially in the United States, right? Like that's what we've been told, including Iran as well. Are you seeing anything shift or change since this war began in Israel, as far as that's concerned? Are we seeing these adversaries, these actors working together more? Yeah, the, the challenge of what we do in looking at social media to gain these intelligence and understand what's happening um, is that social media is such an effective place to hide. Uh, and so to be able to conclusively say, yes, this is Iran behind it, is very, very challenging to do. What we have uncovered is the scale and sophistication of what we are seeing with regards to pro-Hamas coordinated fake accounts is massive in terms of the planning. You have accounts that were created a year, a year and a half ago that were largely inactive and on October the 7th were suddenly woken up. We've uncovered over 40,000 fake accounts, pro-Hamas fake accounts. So the planning, the scale, all of these things, whilst we can't conclusively uh, say who is exactly behind this, we can say this is almost a, a activity on an unprecedented scale. It's certainly unprecedented for any terrorist organization, but also I think is an important. Uh, it's important to be aware that to broaden even the conversation, okay, we would expect it possibly around elections or around times of war, but the cases and instances of which we're seeing these same techniques being used on social media around private companies is also growing. And that should also cause us alarm. Rafi Mendelssohn at Cyabra, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Gianna Jalosi with your Fox True Crime Minute. Support is pouring in for a 10-year-old boy in Alabama who was shot trying to shield his mother from bullets fired by her boyfriend. Police in Sheffield, Alabama say 38-year-old Ashley Lynn McClung, the boy's mother, got into an argument with her boyfriend, 40-year-old Christopher Narmore. Police Chief Ricky Terry says the argument escalated and the boyfriend had a gun and tried to shoot McClung when her 10-year-old son named Kaysen raised his arm to shield her. Kaysen was shot in the arm and the face and then his mother was shot before the boyfriend turned the gun on himself. 
Neighbors say the 10-year-old walked across the hall for help. A neighbor who's a police officer called 911. Kaysen was seriously injured but conscious when medics and police arrived, the chief says, and was able to tell authorities what happened. The boy's mother did not survive. Kaysen is currently stable at the hospital. The principal at New Bethel Elementary School said Kaysen, quote, is a courageous and brave young man and an outstanding kid. A GoFundMe has been set up to help with his injuries. There's more on this story at foxnews.com. Subscribe to the Fox True Crime Podcast with Emily Campagno. I'm Gianna Gelosi with your Fox True Crime Minute. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Tammy Bruce. What's on your mind? Timing is everything and is itself a statement. In the aftermath of the October 7th monstrous assault on Jews in Israel by the Hamas terrorist group, Americans have watched in shock and sadness people in this country marching in support of the terrorist savages, ripping down notices of the missing and kidnapped, along with open statements in public and on social media condemning the Jewish people, wishing for another Holocaust, and celebrating the savage mass murder Israel suffered on that horrible day at the hands of Islamist terrorists. The open displays of support, waving the flag and wearing the colors of a gang of Islamist terrorists that had just murdered 1,400 Jews, injured thousands more and kidnapped hundreds, is in itself a hate crime, as the actions, images and slogans are meant to cause even more terror in the hearts and minds of Jews here at home and around the world. What unfolded even before Israel responded to the October 7th savagery was a tsunami of Jew hatred on campuses, on social media, and in the streets. So what does the Biden administration do during such a desperate and terrifying time for Jews and Americans everywhere? Vice President Kamala Harris, in a video posted on the X platform, announced the Biden administration would develop, quote, the first ever U.S. national strategy to counter Islamophobia. Yes, timing is everything, and this timing was a blunt object, meant as a statement to everyone that you should look away from what's happening to the Jews and instead focus on the Democrats' preferred and false narrative that bigoted Americans are subjecting Muslims to a surge in hate crimes and violence. The problem is that the FBI's own data contradicts Harris's assertion. Harris and the other useful idiots in the White House were well aware that the day before their announcement, FBI Director Christopher Wray testified to the Senate that in the aftermath of October 7th attack on unarmed civilians in Israel, anti-Semitism had reached, quote, historic levels here in the U.S., Last week, the Anti-Defamation League reported a 21% spike in anti-Semitic activity in the United States since Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th. Other countries have seen larger spikes, as well as arrests of people suspected of planning terror attacks targeting Israelis and Jews. As expected, there is further evidence that the Biden-Harris Islamophobia focus is all about themselves and their jobs. The Washington Times reports a Reuters Zogby poll found that 17 percent of Arab Americans support Mr. Biden, down from 59 percent in 2020. In contrast, 
40% of Arab American respondents said they would vote for former President Donald Trump in 2024. And yet, the Democrats think they are losing Arab Americans because they're not parroting the Hamas supporting extremists enough? Here's a newsflash. Just because someone is Arab American does not mean they support the squad, love baby-killing terrorists, or hate Jews. The Democrats' big problem is that they push policies and attitudes that Americans reject. They may think they can hide Biden in the basement again during this next campaign, but what they cannot hide is the fact that they feel beholden to a crowd of leftist extremists who hate this country and feel comfortable openly supporting a psychopathic mass-murdering terrorist group. The Democrat Party's bigotry and racism have been on display for decades. For those who looked away, it is now undeniable. I'm Tammy Bruce, a Fox News contributor, and this column was initially at AMAC, A-M-A-C dot U-S. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Put the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.